Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and Provost. Uh, So it's a great pleasure to welcome you all tonight to LSE for really quite a special event. We're doing two things, I think, for many of you, introducing you to the new Student Centre, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but also starting a series of conversations uh, with some of the alums of the school. Uh, For the last three years, I had the external relations brief at LSE, and I think one of the most interesting things for me was making connections with our alumni community around the world and trying to get some of them to come back to LSE to give talks to us, for example. I think the most successful example of this, I was just telling Rohan, was on April the 11th last year when we got Dan Ackerson back to LSE. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, it turns out that an alum of LSE who graduated in 1978 who'd never come back to the school until 11th of April last year, is or was at the time the boss of General Motors. Um, The school had lost contact with him. He'd been off that afternoon to meet with Angela Merkel in Berlin. He landed at London City Airport uh, at about 5.50 in the evening. He got here at 6.28, and we had a wonderful discussion with him and a dinner afterwards. So the idea of these conversations with current students and people that have gone on sometimes to fame and fortune uh, after leaving the school, I think, is something that we particularly want to encourage and to celebrate. So uh, tonight is the first in a series called In Conversation With, and I'll be introducing our speakers in a moment. I should just let you know that this is the first, I think, in a series of four planned conversations that will take place in February and March. Uh, The next one will be with uh, Bronwyn Curtis, who was the former head of global research and senior advisor at HSBC. And Bronwyn, who was on council until recently, will be in conversation with Professor Danny Kwa um, on the 3rd of March. And tickets are are available for that event. And later in March, we've got Martin Lewis. Many of you will know Martin Lewis. And then Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, two other well-known alums of the school. Now, tonight, of course, we're meeting uh, in the Saw Swee Hock Student Centre. And this, I think, is a building that is going to transform, is starting to transform already, the experience of a current generation of students. I would say staff and students here at LSE. I had previously seen what I considered to be the upstairs part of the building, and I would encourage you, if you get a chance later, to look around the new student centre. I hadn't been deep into the basement before to see what a fantastic facility we have. This will clearly uh, transform the student experience, and it will be part of a continuing major building project that we have. So alums coming back to the school tonight will want to know, perhaps, that the the southern side of Houghton Street will get knocked down in a couple of years' time after the students have finished their exams. There's a wonderful new building going up that's been designed by Roger Stirk Harbour of Lord Rogers fame. Uh, we've also built uh, what I call the large orange building, the Cancer Research Building, on the southwest corner of Lincoln's Inn Fields. So the campus gradually will move north towards Lincoln's Inn Fields, and this will become, in a sense, the centre building of the new campus. I should say that this is not only home to the Students' Union, it's also home to LSE Careers. I think Jenny's with us tonight from Careers, the LSE Faith Centre and LSE Residential 
services. Uh, some of you might have been following in the press some of the initial reviews of the building. Um, it has been described, and I quote, as richly considered and finished, eccentric and deeply satisfying, fantastically individual, a fold-out marvel, and my favourite one, a striking piece of red brick origami. <laughs> uh, it was actually recently acclaimed uh, on the front pages of the architect, the main architecture magazine, as the first major contribution to new university architecture in London, really since the time of Dennis Lasden and the buildings up the road at Soas. So do please get a chance, uh, if, you do, if you do get a chance, do have a look around the building itself. I'd also like to take this opportunity on behalf of the school to thank all the donors who've contributed to the Sorsui Hock Student Centre. But of course, uh, there's a special thanks there to <coughs> Professor Sorsui Hock, after whom uh, the building is named. So let's come to tonight's event. We're very pleased to welcome back to LSE Rohan Silver. Uh, after graduating from LSE with a Master's in Government, Rohan worked first for the then Shadow Chancellor, George Osborne, it's a Freudian slip, George Osborne. <laughs> After the 2010 election, Rohan took up the post of Senior Policy Advisor uh, to David Cameron. Uh, Rohan is widely credited as being the man responsible for setting up the government's Tech City initiative. Now, he's achieved all of this at the time that this went to writing, uh, at the age of 32, I don't know if you've turned 33 yet, Rohan, uh, and stepped down from number 10 last year and is now entrepreneur in residence at Index Ventures and is a research affiliate at MIT, and I hope soon at LSE. Uh, we look forward to hearing a lot more, of course, about Rohan's work in the course of the evening when he will be in conversation, uh, fittingly, with Garrick Hillerman. Uh, Garrick himself, I should say, was in 2013 LSE's Entrepreneur of the Year, and I think currently is a doctoral student in the Department of Economic History. Uh, but Garrick is also a person with very extensive experience, I think perhaps 15 years' experience in the private sector, having worked not only with startups, but with very well-known companies like Home Depot or The Home Depot in the United States and uh, Bank of America. Uh, I have to give my own apologies, as I have done to uh, Garrick and Rohan, for having to... Uh, leave tonight before actually listening to the entire conversation. For those uh, Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is at LSE Sorsui. And as usual, the way that it works here at LSE is that there will be the conversation first between Rohan and Garrick. After that, there will be a chance for you all to put your questions to both of our speakers, but particularly, I think, to Rohan. Uh, we're aiming to close the formal conversation at around quarter to eight or thereabouts, uh, and there is a bar afterwards where you're all invited to stay behind and have a drink on LSE. So now is just the time, please, to welcome back to LSE this evening, Rohan Silver. Thank you. <clears throat> Great. Thank you, Stuart. Um, one other thing I should mention is we are... Um, going to be having drinks uh, afterwards. In case you're feeling the inclination to leave a little early, don't. Uh, Rohan and I are going to be uh, hosting an open free bar, uh, free bar. after this event. Yeah. So we expect all of you to turn out for that. 
Well, it's a real honor and privilege to be on stage with Rohan, and, and uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover here. We're going to talk for about 30 minutes, roughly, about um, some of the things Rohan's been up to, both during his time here at the LLC and afterwards, and then try to get to your questions as quickly as possible so we can hear what you want to discuss. And we're going to go through really three kind of categories. We're going to talk first about the LSC, of course, um, talk about your time in the UK government, and then uh, move on to your entrepreneurial activities and what you've been up to most recently. So first, um, starting with the LSC, um, tell, tell me, what do you, looking back, what do you most appreciate about your time uh, at the LSC? Well, I, um, so I, was, I was only here for one year, and... Uh, I've never been very good at, uh, at, at studying and uh, being sort of told what to do. And, uh, and yet I um, look back on this, this year at the LSE over and above the you know, post-crush hangovers, over and above um, uh, you know, getting in trouble for not having an essay, you know, the usual stuff. I, I, um, I really underwent uh, a huge change in the course of this single year, and I think that is testament to what can happen in a place like this. Um, when I started at the LSE, I, I, uh, um, my political opinions were very much, um, I guess you could sort of describe as kind of utopian leftist, and um, I really believed it was possible to have all the answers on a single sheet of paper, and uh, that um, it was possible for government or anyone to sort of make, make everything okay. And it, studying under John Gray um, and reading Karl Popper and Isaiah Berlin for the first time, um, coming to believe, and I might not be right, but coming to, coming to <clears throat> believe that the world is much more complex um, than I'd previously thought. You know, Karl Popper talked about how we confuse uh, clouds and cuckoo clocks, that uh, we, we often think things like societies and, uh, and economies are like cuckoo clocks. They're predictable and we can pull a lever and know what's going to happen. Whereas in reality, there may well be something much more like clouds, turbulent, emergent, bottom-up, complex systems. And um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was during my year at the LSE that that realisation hit me. And everything I've done since... Um, all of the policy work I try to do in opposition and in government, the kind of entrepreneurship I try and support uh, has all been inspired by that kind of insight that, that came to me here, um, for which I'll always be kind of grateful and uh, slightly in awe of. Great. Mm. Um, so I think you kind of answered my second question. I mean, it was really the intellectual climate that you think that really has made the biggest impact um, in terms of what you took out of the LSE on your subsequent successes. But um, um, if you could look back, uh, and this is kind of one of these, if you could go back questions, advice to current students uh, who are in the audience, audience, anything you wish you would have done more of or differently during your time here at the LSE? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, because, uh, you know, theoretically I should, I should uh, think that I should study more and uh, have... You know, revised and and the kind of you know the obvious the obvious things. But um, it's a good thing Stuart left the audience. Yeah. He, is the, he is the provost, and I have a feeling I know what's coming here. Yeah. But um, I think the you know the beautiful thing about the LSE, um, the beautiful thing about London, and the LSE being a kind of microcosm of London, are the serendipitous collisions and random encounters. And you know, I think the thing that I always cherish the LSE for are you know the the public events and the mm. random 
conversations with the kind of Czech dissidents in the uh, student union or someone teaching you how to play Go, the Japanese kind of board game uh, up in the Shaw Library. You know, it's those being open to those those random collisions, um, uh, I think, is, you know, to me, um, you know, that which makes the LSC so special. I think if I'd have, if I'd have spent, been here again, I would have spent more time, though, in addition to the LSC, in the various other education institutions that dot around uh, the LSC, at SOAS and at, mm-hmm. um, you know, far-flung institutes of the University of London. I just think it's such a blessing to have um, such a consolation of people thinking such diverse thoughts and, and burrowing deeply into, into completely different areas. I think if, if London is, um, you know, I think the strength of London comes from the fact that, you know, yes, we're too centralised as a, as a country, but it does mean that London's a place where you've got the centre of British politics, the centre of the media, um, fashion, uh, entrepreneurship, venture capital, you know, all colliding in this, in this one place. And, uh, you know, I think I think being being open to that is uh, is is part of what it is to be at the LSE. Great. Um, so, ha- tell me about your interaction with the LSE, kind of since you left. How closely have you followed um, what's been happening at the LSE? This mm. wonderful new building, the direction of the campus. Are you happy with how things have gone? What's changed? What's most similar? <coughs> I've. Uh, I, I when I was when I was here, I was in a was in a play with uh, Howard Davies, who was then the director. And he, he just started as director when I started here. And uh, the first time I ever met Howard, we were doing a rehearsal. The play was uh, the, uh, the, the Little Prince, Le Petit Prince. And uh, Howard, being a good sport, had agreed to play the businessman. He, he was in loads of trouble uh, from the student student body, uh, lots of protests because he had uh, taken up some posts on an oil company board and on a big investment bank board, so a lot of protests. He agreed to play the businessman who's this absurd character, if any of you have read the book, who is counting the stars, and when asked why are you counting the stars, says, well, if you count the stars, then you own them. And so he he really deconstructed himself. Um, But the first time I met him, we were rehearsing, and he arrived late from a previous meeting, and he walked in with his briefcase. And we were doing a warm-up game where you had to play an animal that began with your first name. So I was, I don't know, being a raccoon for Rohan or something. And we told him the game, and he immediately dropped his briefcase and flopped to the floor and started sort of flopping around on the floor and um, it turns out he was being Howard the Haddock and, uh, and so I've stayed in touch with him ever since because I think there's a, there's a, 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 the ability to switch from one world to another that uh, Howard, Howard has I just think is, is incredible so I've stayed in touch with him um, I still come to as many public lectures as I possibly can. Um, they're slightly early in the evening f- uh, for, for my liking. It's amazing you've all rushed here in time for the start of this. Um, I, I chaired a talk with Sal Khan of the Khan Academy in the old theatre mm. uh, recently, and, uh, and that was incredible to see. I mean, he, he was, I don't know if any of you know the Khan Academy, but he was like a sort of rock star and uh, having to kind of shield him from the crowd uh, at the end to kind of get him off into the green room was an amazing to see someone see so many people moved by uh, uh, an entrepreneur like that was was incredible but uh, but yeah so I've kept in touch with certain people and the events program um, I I would love to have some kind of 
um, deeper connection with uh, teaching that that goes on here because I think you know the opportunity for the LSE is to connect into all of the great things that happen in London and ensure that the student base um, and the lectures are enlivened by kind of uh, the latest practice from entrepreneurship and government and so on mm-hmm. um, and I'd love to be part of that part of that umbilical cord. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more about entrepreneurship later, but maybe <clears throat> since we're talking about the LSE and you mentioned entrepreneurship in London, mm. tell me about how you see uh, the LSE best engaging in the entrepreneurial environment, both within Lo- London and maybe even more broadly. Uh, entrepreneurship is very much in focus. Mm. There's been some money raised. Um, what can the LSE be doing more of, or how should it approach the whole subject of entrepreneurship? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think that... Uh, the LSE is obviously an incredibly international place. Um, I think in Britain we have a slightly um, amateurish approach to sort of business. I think there's a view that business skills are sort of manna from heaven. And they, they're not, they can't be taught. Um, I remember telling the Prime Minister, I was originally going to do an MBA, and I told the Prime Minister um, about a year and a half ago that I was going to go and do an MBA. And he sort of pulled a funny face and said, isn't that what night, isn't that what night school is for? And uh, <laughs> which I think is a very British attitude towards this thing uh, that is you know, business. Um, uh, so I, I, I think there's the scope for a formal program at the, at the LSE around entrepreneurship. I do think there are core skills that can be taught. So I, I, think, I think there's, uh, there's something there um, that, that can be done. Uh, I think that there are a whole set of um, uh, particular clusters in London, of which uh, Tech City in East London is, is just one, um, where there are real opportunities to link the student base to the entrepreneurs in those clusters who are crying out for you know, extra, pairs of, extra pairs of hands to, um, uh, to, to support kind of business activity. Um, I think I think that is is something that could formally be done. The, the, the LSE is a f- phenomenal entrepreneurship program. I did a parliamentary internship um, through the LSE. You know, could you see something similarly uh, deep, deeply rooted, connecting LSE students, undergrads, um, postgrad students to uh, entrepreneur entrepreneurial companies in London? I think so. Um, and the, the the final thing I think is. Um, uh, arguably the most important. I, I think space is incredibly important for entrepreneurship. You know, there's the old Winston Churchill quote, first we shape our buildings and then they shape us. And, you know, I wonder whether there could be places on campus uh, which could be incubators for mm. entrepreneurs. Uh, there, are, there are critically kind of central bits of infrastructure that uh, standalone entrepreneurs find it hard to access, like 3D printing, uh, like back-end, uh, admin, finance, HR support. Mm-hmm. Uh, an incubator here on campus, I think, could really be an incredible petri dish for uh, innovation and, uh, and entrepreneurship. Uh, so I think, I think some combination of that, mm-hmm. I think, could be an incredible catalyst for, for the LSE. Um, you know, it's an incredibly entrepreneurial place. Um, so I think it, it makes... You know, to me, it makes absolute sense that uh, this place could also be a hotbed of formal entrepreneurship as well as kind of intellectual entrepreneurship. Great, great. We'll, we'll I'm sure, talk more about entrepreneurship here towards the end. But uh, one last question on the LSC before we move on to uh, what we all want to hear about, which is what it's like to work with um, Osborne and Cameron, and which one did you prefer, of course, all these juicy <laughs> kind of questions. Um, how many alumni do we have in the, uh, the audience tonight? <coughs> Quite a few. Great. 
Um, I was just wondering, as an alum, could you, what could you say about the LSC Alumni Network, how, um, how well organized it is, how, how you've interacted with it? Do you think about the LSC Alumni Network? Or? I mean, hands up, I don't really. <laughs> I, um, you know, I guess... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I've never been very good at uh, sort of clubs and, and, and being, being part of clubs. I, you know, I, I, uh, I remember when I was applying to the LSE, you know, it was the calibre of the alumni that really um, sort of turned, turned my head. And uh, so these things clearly matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a paradox um, in London, which is that, you know, the LSE can, uh, you know, create a, uh, serve an incredible convening role as it does in its public programs, uh, for example. And yet, and yet, because you're in London, um, everyone's incredibly busy. And so, you know, there's a need for uh, places that need sort of focal points for, for conversation and, and debate. And yet the kind of centripetal forces in London are sort of pulling everyone apart. And I, I really feel that very strongly with the LSE um, and the, the alumni network. I, I find that sort of, I'm drawn towards it and yet, you know, we're all so well, you know, we're all so busy that it's hard to sort of put, put time in. Um, you know, I, I think that you know this type of this type of event, and I'm, I'm sure what goes on as well, linking alumni to the teaching of courses, um, is incredibly important because that that sort of refreshing. I think it's a challenge uh, if you're an academic because um, you know the moment you get tenure, you know you're on campus and you know you're perhaps not as exposed to you know the fast-moving innovation cycle as uh, as as you might want to be. And I think that is the role of the alumni to ensure that you know this institution is constantly provoked and constantly presented with um, you know the latest. Uh, entrepreneurial technology innovation government um, practices that can ensure that when our when LSE students leave this place, you know they can really hit the ground running. Um, you know, I mean, between us, I remember studying um, comparative. Uh, when I was here, I deferred the uh, the civil service fast stream. I was due to start at the treasury, and I deferred that for a year to come here, and uh, I studied for my sins comparative administration, which was just the most. Uh, deathly awful subject and uh, but you know I do remember feeling slightly frustrated that, that we didn't have any civil servants coming in and uh, talking to us we didn't have any government ministers coming in and talking uh, to us um, and it was very it was very theoretical and very academic and uh, you know I think that the LSE is, is near uniquely placed to avoid that kind of setup and I think the alumni network can and I'm sure is playing a big role in uh, in sh- ensuring that relevance um, that that can enrich the uh, the teaching experience here. Mm. So we're going to talk now about politics and policy. So Rohan was uh, often cited as one of the most effective members uh, in government. Damned with faint praise. <laughs> Um, you had your hands on a whole whole bunch of different projects, London's Tech City, of course, uh, Life Sciences Strategy and other things. I was wondering if you could speak about which of these projects you're most proud of and then also how you managed to be so effective in government. I think a lot of young people, when they look at careers in public policy, are looking at the bureaucracy mm. and thinking, mm, you know, I'd rather go do something in the private sector. I can get things done more easily there. Yeah. But how did you cut through all that? Well, look, it's <laughs> worth saying my... my um uh, my first proper job after the LSE was in the Treasury. I was a fast stream civil servant, and 
I, it was the only graduate job I applied to do. And I um, started on my first day, and I realized that I absolutely hated it. And, um, uh, and I spent 18 very miserable months achieving absolutely nothing. The only thing I actually achieved, I think, was that I managed to get a quiet room put in the treasury. And that was it. That was my <laughs> sole achievement in 18 months. So, so much of this is, um, is contextual. And uh, I, was, uh, I, I was absolutely... Um, hating it. My, my first day at the Treasury, I uh, was, was in a team uh, that was looking after tax strategy, and uh, this, this team was being instructed to work closely with revenue and customs, and they were spending, the, the Treasury and, well, the government was spending a, a lot of money trying to encourage these two departments, the Treasury, Revenue and Customs, to work closely together. They were spending money on away days and strategy you know, get-togethers and all this. And I said on my first day, um, wide-eyed and, and simple-minded that I, as I was, um, hey, we don't have uh, the phone numbers and email addresses on our internet of Revenue and Customs, and they don't seem to have ours. So it's very hard, actually, to work with them. You've got to call their reception and switchboard anytime you want to work with someone. Um, and I said, well, I'll, you know, and I'll, I'll fix this. You know, it's quite a simple thing. I'll go and, I'll go and speak to some people. And my team leader put his arm around me and took me for a little walk and said, look, you seem uh, eager enough, but uh, just to let you know, that's not how you get ahead in this place. And uh, uh, he said, you'll be fine. Just do the job that you've been asked to do. And I said, well, I'm going to do that. But I was thinking I was just going to sort this out in my spare time. And he said, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And, uh, and when I left a year and a half later, this still hadn't been fixed. And, um, and, and I think, you know, that's, I think, unfortunately, you know, bureaucracies are very difficult places to, in which to get things done. They're very hierarchical, very hidebound. Um, I left after um, less than 18 months. I got a tap on the shoulder to go and have a coffee with George Osborne, who was then the Shadow Chancellor. I'd never met George before. And um, so I ambled over from the Treasury to Parliament to go and have a coffee with this guy. And after about five minutes of chatting to him, I sort of dopily twigged that this might be an interview. And I, uh, I said to George, um, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not an economist. And George says, oh, neither am I. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that was that. He called me up the next day, and I was sat in the Treasury next to my team leader and my line manager, and George calls up and says, I'd like you to come and work for me. And uh, I uh, sort of freaked out a bit because I couldn't, I couldn't talk uh, properly and, uh, and said, um, yes, I'll, I'll action that. I'll take that forward. And, uh, <laughs> and that was that. I gave up the canteen and the, uh, uh, and the pension. And my mum really should have been pretty upset about this. You know, she'd... Uh, you know, paid paid for the LSE, and uh, she was proud, I guess, that I was I was in the civil service and in the fast stream. Um, and as I called her up with some trepidation to say that I was I was quitting it all for this little startup in a garage team that was George Osborne and David Cameron's uh, little team. And uh, weirdly, I've I've forgotten that my mum uh, is still to this day obsessed uh, uh, in, with the hope that I might become a newsreader. She uh, <laughs> she really she really sees uh, like any good immigrant mum, three legitimate careers, lawyer, doctor, newsreader. And um, so when I called her up to say, listen, I've, I've quit 
a civil service and I'm going to go and work for these people you, uh, who may or may not uh, you know, have, have a job for me in a few months. Um, she said, wow, that's great. You'll be reading the news soon. Um, and I didn't have the heart to break it to her that that's not how <laughs> that career worked. Um, but, I, but I absolutely love that time in opposition. A lot of people complain about opposition um, because you're not technically in power. Or as I saw it as a great time where you could have a bad idea at nine in the morning and write it into a speech being delivered 20 minutes later. You know, there was, a, there was an incredible feedback loop. And um, I mean, just to, just to answer the, the second of your questions about um, which of the policies I'm sort of lucky enough to have, um, have developed um, and, and which I'm sort of proudest of, um, I, think, I think probably uh, open data and government transparency. So when I was in opposition uh, I proposed a whole set of policies around spending transparency, um, uh, which were cribbed from the Obama campaign, um, uh, a whole bunch of policies to try and make um, the performance of public services more transparent and publish uh, you know, huge amounts of government data that have been locked up in, in government servers. And uh, it, it, what was, the reason I'm sort of so pleased about that is that I think it uh, is, is driving on sort of structural reforms in government. It's empowering citizens with information that they're in, that in turn using to put pressure on government. Uh, and also this data is being used by um, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, as well as commercial entrepreneurs, to create apps and services that couldn't have existed um, previously. And uh, it, was a, it was a real fight uh, because um, governments, politicians never really, really want more openness, particularly when they're in government. So I used to think of our time in opposition as an, as an opportunity to create um, what I used to call rhetorical fiscal rules. Um, so make sort of outlandish statements about open data that we couldn't row back on if we ever got into government. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of kind of scheming and <laughs> sort of planning, um, which I'm sort of, you know, weirdly, weirdly proud of. Um, and the final thing to say, I guess, about open data is it, it, um, my belief in open data stems from the sort of epistemological insights that uh, I picked up here at the LSE. Um, the sort of idea that um, a closed cabal of experts, um, you know, generally won't arrive at better conclusions um, than dispersed expertise and dispersed information. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the same insights that move me away from the sort of utopian left and, and from reading Karl Popper and Isaiah Berlin also directly informed those open data policies. Um, so there's a nice sort of circularity there of which I'm, you know, I think is, is nice. Great. Excellent. So you're out of government now, sort of, right? <laughs> sort of. So yeah. you can speak candidly. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about, you know, uh, you know, Osborne and Cameron working for them and their strengths and weaknesses, things you liked, maybe disliked. Yeah. Open up a bit. Uh, okay. <laughs> as best you can, I know. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Um, they are, you know, They're very different to one another. Um, George Osborne is an incredibly sort of urban person. And uh, he's very different to the kind of public persona. He's he's incredibly witty, very dark sense of humor, um, which is often kind of getting him in trouble. Um, (laughs) And uh, and, uh, David Cameron is... um, 
just the most sort of loyal person. And what they, I think, something they, and he's he's much more um, rural actually than George. I mean, George was born in London, uh, is 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 really a kind of an urbanite. You can imagine him at the LSE in in quite a sort of big way. Um, whereas David Cameron is much more of a kind of rural countryside sort of person, and um, it's really quite striking when you when you spend time with the two of them they, they do bring with them very different sensibilities the thing they have in common though and I think it's a it's a very cool thing um, is that uh, if, if they if they trust you they really back you and uh, even when it gets them in trouble uh, as it as it does from time to time um, uh, a couple of quick stories on that um, when we were in uh, opposition uh, I'd heard that Jesse Jackson, the civil rights leader, was in doing a tour of the UK to mark the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade. And so I said to George, come on, let's go up and uh, hear him speak. I can get you a little speaking slot ahead of, ahead of Jesse Jackson. Let's, let's do it. So George, kind of being up for stuff, uh, said, sure. And uh, so we went and I wrote this little speech uh, for, for George. And uh, George stood up in front of Jesse Jackson's um, big lecture uh, in a it was an all black church in Manchester and uh, George read out this little speech that I'd written about how Wil- William Wilberforce had uh, abolished slavery and how this interplay between campaigners and politicians had driven this great change and the audience was just deathly silent George finished speaking there wasn't even a kind of polite ripple of applause it was just total silence and uh, Uh, someone else got up to speak after George and it was this real rabble rouser called Lee Jasper Uh, I didn't know he was going to be speaking and Lee Jasper strode to the podium and said to this audience don't you let no white man pointing at George tell you that it was some white man who ended slavery slavery ended when the first black man stood up and said no more and the whole audience stood up screaming (laughs) and uh, George looked at you know just completely freaked out and uh, uh, and I slipped out the back as uh, um, but you know that that really came about because of you know he was because he was you know up for things and um, you know that's true of both George and David you know they are people who um, will always back new ideas and the things I was lucky enough to be able to kind of propose and around behavioural economics and crowdsourcing um, the use of new technology in government you know so often um, that was just about being able to say to George or David, look, trust me on this, it's, it's going to be the right thing to do. And so often in politics, when you're proposing something new, you are laughed at uh, originally. And it's a very macho um, world politics. And it's not necessarily a place where new ideas, where um, new intellectual uh, sort of, you know, where intellectual thinkers are welcome. Um, if you look at uh, Brian McGee, a uh, great Papirian historian and uh, how badly he fared as an MP, um, you know, you see, I think, just how hostile politics can be to to new thinking. Um, And I I really do, I will always be grateful to them for um, championing kind of new ideas in a way that I think... Um, I don't think the public notices, and I'm sure Red Miliband does the same. By the way, I, um, but uh, you know, I'll always be I'll always be grateful for that for, the, for their willingness to kind of uh, to, to leap um, into the abyss um, when asked to in, in pursuit of a of a new idea or a new policy direction. Great. 
All right, our last kind of politics policy question before we segue to uh, the entrepreneurship and tech section. Um, and this hopefully is a good good segue to that. Um, so you've talked about how the UK uh, skill system is equipped for the 20th century and not really the 21st. And I believe you're the chairman of the uh, uh, Year of Code campaign. And I just wonder if you could elaborate on, mm. on both the campaign and your comments on kind of the skills and how <coughs> countries like the UK can really equip themselves for this changing world where technology seems to be becoming more and more important. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think... Um I'm really fascinated by, as I'm sure many of you are, by um, uh, labour market data. You know, I'm, I'm that kind of party guy. And uh, there's, uh, there's, there's a really interesting trend that you see in the UK and US and developed economies around the world, which is sort of bifurcation of the labour market. Um, we see uh, fewer jobs being created in the middle of the income distribution, more jobs being created at the bottom and at the top. And this sort of so-called hourglass economy or the squeeze middle um, is really the center ground of uh, political debate uh, in well, right across the developed world. And I think that often in politics, we wind up debating the symptoms rather than the root causes. And I'm really um, struck by the work of economists like Tyler Cowen, um, the, the new book, um, the, the, the Second Machine Age by two MIT um, academics, um, uh, which look at the impact of uh, automation and technology on the labour market, uh, along with globalisation. And these thinkers, in particular Tyler Cowen, argue that the, the stagnation of middle class incomes is being is being driven by technology, and technology is starting to replace white collar jobs in the way that blue co- blue collar jobs were were replaced by technology in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and. Um, you, uh, you, you, uh, I think that it's, it's incredibly important for us as a country to ensure that we're not competing against technology, but instead as many people as possible are benefiting from the impact of technology. And that, to me, all comes down to skills. And, uh, uh, and in particular, ensuring that uh, in school and uh, for apprenticeship programs at university, higher education, further education, um, coding and technology skills, along with entrepreneurship, are really placed front and centre. Um, because we can't, um, you know, technology is sort of an exogenous, exogenous shock on the labour market. And if we sort of carry on as we are, I worry that a lot of the jobs that we used to take for granted, um, legal work, accounting work and so on, are increasingly being replaced by um, algorithms, data mining software, um, uh, text mining software, and so on. And it's a very profound um, challenge, this, which also brings with it great opportunity um, to earn more, to um, start businesses more quickly and and cheaply than was ever the case. Um, But it's only a real opportunity if we respond proactively. Uh, which is why I'm involved in this campaign, the Year of Code, which is really about trying to um, bang the drum on behalf of computer science and coding and, and try and explain to people why this sort of esoteric sort of uh, domain is relevant for many more of us than we might, we might like to think. Um, so that's, that's, that's the objective of the, of the campaign. When I was in government, one of the things I um, helped bring about was the, um, uh, the, 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 from this September, computer coding is being made compulsory in the national curriculum. Mm-hmm. Britain's the first country in the G20 to make that change. Um, I think you'll see that um, in many, there's a big campaign going on in America right now to 
um, encourage the American government to follow suit, for example. Um, and so I think this sort of mainstreaming of technology of coding into you know, all aspects of the skill system is is incredibly important. Um, and I, I do think it is is strange that you know if you look at um, you know the LSE or you look at St Martin's or uh, Camberwell Art School or Goldsmiths, you know entrepreneurship and coding aren't parts of you know aren't compulsory. I think in the generation's time we'll look at, look back at that as as, as very strange. Um, so I, I, the point of year of code is to sort of bring about that kind of culture shift um, and ensure that more people in the UK benefit from the technology rather than compete against it and unfortunately lose out. Great. Thank you. Okay, so our final section before we open it up for questions is we're going to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship and technology. So you are the entrepreneur in residence at Index Ventures. Mm. Sounds like a fabulous job. How do we get one of those jobs? What, what is an entrepreneur in residence exactly, and how does one yeah. go about becoming one? It's sort of a fancy way of saying I've got a desk. Uh, <laughs> I, when, I, when I left number 10, I needed a place to uh, land and um, work out what the hell I was going to do, because um, I knew... I, I knew I wanted to start businesses, and um, you know the people I most admire are people that have built companies. Um, but I didn't have the bandwidth, I didn't have the time when I was at number 10 to really be working on anything. Um, and uh, also, you can't raise money while you're doing a job, uh, while you're working at 10 Downing Street. So I needed a place to kind of land, um, and that's really what um, Index are all about. The Index Ventures invest in early-stage companies, and um, they're a really fun place to hang out because you get to see um, every day companies coming in and pitching, and I'll just find it endlessly fascinating seeing what investors talk about when the entrepreneurs leave the room, um, which is a sort of scary, a scary thing. Um, but I've actually, I've actually started a couple of companies since I've, since yeah. I've left. Um, uh, one is, I, I've, I've certainly learned entrepreneur, entrepreneurship is much more of a drunken random walk than, uh, <laughs> than, I, than I thought. And, uh, and so the companies I've started are nothing like the ones I thought I was going to be working on. Um, I started one company uh, with an LSE uh, alumni, actually, uh, and it's called Spacious. And uh, it's, a, it's a listing platform for commercial property. And over time, what Spacious is going to become is a, a platform on which small businesses can buy the things they need, um, a web developer, um, an accountant, um, office space um, and, and really it's a structural response it's a response to you know the incredible um, shift that's taken place in the British economy over the past 30 years we've gone from um, 700,000 uh, businesses in the UK in 1979 to about 5.1 million today there were more businesses started in the UK last year than any year in British history yeah. the incredible um, explosion of entrepreneurship and I'm I don't think that the kind of corporate world has responded uh, strategically to to that shift so spacious I hope is um, is is the beginnings of a response to that and then I've started a second company uh, called uh, second home and with second home what we're trying to do is is um, create big buildings uh, sort of incubators mm. that make small 
the sort of small growing companies in our midst more productive? And uh, I, th- I think this is a really interesting kind of question: how 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 the built environment mm. uh, impacts on entrepreneurship. And uh, you know, it's it's very tough as a small business um, because uh, it's tough to recruit people um, uh, and compete against big companies who have gleaming, uh, beautiful work environments and, uh, and, and great amenities. So Second Home is about trying to level that playing field. And, and on top of that, I think there's a really interesting paradox in the internet age, which is that technology is supposedly obliterating distance. You know, theoretically, we could all be uh, watching this and I could be, uh, you know, from our home computers and I could be speaking into uh, a webcam. And yet we get together you know and 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 this paradox which is that um technology is obliterating distance and yet proximity matters more than ever um if you look at the correlation between patent uh, generation and innovation and population density um it's getting more and more pronounced you know clustering matters more than ever um and so second home is also a uh, company in which um, people are brought together and the pot is stirred. Um, we've got a regular program of events. We're trying to bring about those kind of serendipitous collisions that happen, say, on campus uh, within our buildings and, and so helping the entrepreneurs in our midst um, come up with new ideas and, and be that much more creative and, and productive. So those are, those are the two companies, and they're both, I guess, driven by this kind of mission to support the insurgent and to support um, the entrepreneur um, I think life is just so hard for, for entrepreneurs and uh, you know the extent to which kind of Whitehall and I still think to some extent British society um, uh, is is pretty hostile to um, entrepreneurs um, is, is something that's just got to change and hopefully these two companies in their own small way contribute to that to that um, culture shift that, that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. So last question here before we uh, open it up, which is uh, for the students out there in the audience. I see a few of my students here. Uh, this is for those who are thinking about going into entrepreneurship. And this came up actually at a panel um, I was on that LC Careers put on recently about whether or not LC students should really pursue their entrepreneurial dreams right out of mm-hmm. um, school here or go get that first job, get a couple years of experience, get some capital under their belt, some some networks. Um, or really, no, let's go drop out of school, pull Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. What's your advice to, uh, to people on pursuing their entrepreneurial dreams? Well, I'm, uh, I'm on the board of a, uh, of a not-for-profit called Entrepreneur First. Has anyone here heard of Entrepreneur First? A few people. So um, uh, for those that haven't, Entrepreneur Fest is, is, is a program that uh, is modeled on Teach First and takes the brightest and best graduates. And uh, uh, you get on this program and you have a year of uh, mentoring and coaching and funding and incubation to help you get your business off the ground. And what's really cool about it is that we have a huge list of graduate recruiters, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, the civil service, all of whom are lined up to say, if you... Uh, if you get onto Entrepreneur First and start a business and decide it's not for you, this entrepreneurship lark, maybe not now, maybe not ever, they, um, these graduate recruiters will fast-track you through their recruitment process, will look favorably on your application. And I think that's really, I think that's really important. And, and that was really what informed Entrepreneur First, was trying to uh, help young graduates uh, or soon-to-be graduates understand that entrepreneurship 
won't end up with a gap on your CV. That the very act of trying, the very act of launching something is incredibly attractive to graduate recruiters. And I think that is, whether you get onto entrepreneur first or not, I think it's absolutely true. I think there's no better time to take a punt, take a risk, um, than straight out of university. And, you know, in an age where, you know, the big, the big blue chips are uh, aren't hiring like they used to in an age where you know the innovations are disproportionately coming from small insurgent fast-growing companies there's never been a more exciting time to start a business and um, but safe in the knowledge that should you give it a crack for a couple of years you know that job at JP Morgan or McKinsey is not just still available to you but I think you're more likely to get that job having proven your entrepreneurial kind of now some mentality. The big, the big firms really uh, are moving towards a model of open innovation where they crave entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in their midst. Um, so I, I say, just you know, hand on heart, go for it. You know, this is this is this is such a golden moment for entrepreneurship. Um, it, there's never been sort of anything anything like it. You can start a company out of here, and a week later, be um, um, in contact with a global market. You know, that is an amazing moment. And uh, I think there's no better place than London to, um, to start that business and shoot for the moon. Great. Excellent. Thank you for that. All right. So now we're going to go to questions from the audience. So uh, we've got some roving mics that are going to be moving around the room. And uh, uh, please make sure that you wait till the microphone comes to you uh, when you're going to speak so that we can make sure we record this for the podcast. Now, Ron, do you want to take questions individually or in bunches of three? Um, I don't know. Should we? Well, let's see them individually. Individually? No, okay, that sounds great. So I see a question right over Remember. here first, and we'll go here second, and here in the middle aisle. If you could just state your name and where you're from first, that'd be great. All right, thank you. My name is Sana, and um, I'm originally from Pakistan, and a student here doing law and accounting, master's. Well, I have a, a few variations of questions. I hope if I can be permitted to ask that. Just out of curiosity, we were just discussing that it's extremely overwhelming being at the LSC. Though you mentioned that you were a part of several activities and that's where you benefited most from. But what about grades? Did you really benefit from that? Um, <laughs> did it help you through? It may give me some co- or us some consolation. <laughs> All right, my students need to put their hands over the David. I see you there. Don't listen to the answer here. It's really weird. so. I'd um, uh, I'd already got into the civil service fast stream when I came to the LSE, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although they kept, I kept getting letters, so I deferred um, my place in the fast stream for a year to come here. And I kept getting letters in the post from the civil service, um, um, being a kind of you know useless bureaucracy that it is. I kept getting letters saying, um, "We're sorry that you have uh, turned down your place in the civil service," um, and I hadn't. I just deferred it, and I kept sort of um, having to call them up and beg for my sort of job back uh, that they kept trying to take away from me. Um, but I, so I, I was in a funny position here because. I just saw it as a year of being able to kind of have a reading list and a library and just sort of pursue my own direction, safe in the knowledge that no one would ever really ask about my grades until your question. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, but I mean, I've got to say, I mean, I... uh, as someone who is recruiting lots of people for for my startups, as someone who has hired lots of people into government, 
I would never ask someone what their grades were. Maybe because mine were so bad, I don't want to. Um, but uh, you know, I think that what is most important is is uh, is the quality of thought and of energy and of ambition. And of course, that can be reflected in in your um, studies. Um, but the beauty of the LSE is everything else that's available to you. And if I had to kind of choose um, which to kind of wait, I would I would wait the kind of conversations and the intellectual inquiry, which may take you far outside the bounds of, um, of your formal studies. Yeah. So a question right down the middle of the aisle here. Thank you. Maybe if we can just go through people's first rounds of questions and come back to you. I'm George, an alum of the LSE, and my question is about fools. Uh, I'm heading about fools, fool, foolish people. Uh, I'm, I'm heading a, a support network of entrepreneurs called Entrepreneurs Over 30, yeah. which gives away the meaning. But uh, would you say that there are more uh, f- persistent fools among entrepreneurs in their 20s as opposed to entrepreneurs who have matured a bit and start a business in their 30s? Yeah. Sorry, just one other thing on this um, grade question. I used to help uh, organise science seminars for the Prime Minister. He used to really like these sort of teach-ins on you know, uh, genetics or, or whatever else. And he used to proudly say at the beginning of each of these that he got a D in O-level science, um, which is a, a sort of weird thing to be kind of proud of. So I guess that shows that um, those poor grades didn't stop him doing quite well in life. But... Um, on fools and uh, and people in their kind of twenties versus thirties, um, yeah. Look, I mean, I think that uh, I think one of the things that's changing in I think there used to be this really big um, disparity between entrepreneurship and a kind of safe blue chip career, and uh, you know this, there was this notion of a job for life or this sort of very uncertain kind of maverick path. And I think actually those two worlds are really alighting. And, um, you know, one of the things that was really striking, you know, I created the UK Life Science Strategy in 2011. Um, the farmer industry, the big established farmer uh, industry, really just wants to work with entrepreneurs. Tech City was really about bringing the kind of corporates together with entrepreneurs. Um, so the big companies want to have a, an element of that kind of foolishness uh, in their in their midst, they realise that's where kind of innovation um, comes from. So I, I think you're. I think what we're on the cusp of is a is a trend where that kind of foolishness, that kind of entrepreneurial um, um, conceit, is something that is going to be um, needed right throughout your career. Um, McKinsey have some great data showing the average lifespan of a Standard & Poor's 500 company, the biggest 500 companies in America. According to McKinsey, in 1930, the average lifespan of one of those companies was about 90 years. So if if you were one of those big blue chips, you could expect to be around for 90 years. Today, say McKinsey, the average lifespan is about 18 years, and they think by 2020, it'll be just 10 years. Um, They also argue, McKinsey, that um, in 10 years' time, two-thirds of the S&P 500, um, two-thirds of those biggest 500 companies in America, um, will be companies that haven't yet been started. So in just 10 years' time, 
McKinsey expect two-thirds of the S&P 500 will be born um, and, and, and explode to such a such a big size. So, you know, I think I think the, the sort of the old era of big lumbering blue chips that are around forever and entrepreneurs um, doing very risky things. I don't think that's such a um, we're not talking about such a kind of um, polarity, um, a binary situation anymore, and that's very scary. But it's also very, um, I think, very inspiring that uh, for those of you who are thinking about their careers, you know, I think, sadly, going to work for that blue chip won't be a job for life. I don't think you should see it as a job for life um, uh, for as much reason as those companies may not be around in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Um, and what they really crave, I think, are the, is an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, and if you're here and at the LSC, I'm sure you've got that in spades. Great. Let's go to the back there. There's someone on the back right. Hi. Um, I'm a LSE alumni, um, a social entrepreneur, and I now lead a private equity firm. Um, my question is, why have, this country has done a lot better in promoting entrepreneurship. But there's one simple um, facet that we failed to do, and that's introduce a Chapter 11 type mm. structure here. Now, I've spoken to uh, various leaders over the years about this, and I don't understand why they don't get that we should be celebrating failure as much as we try to celebrate success. Mm. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I spent years trying to get uh, uh, David Cameron to do an event with a couple of hundred failed entrepreneurs. And uh, essentially to say, hey, look, your businesses have failed. Have another go. And, uh, and the press team, who were much wiser than me, would always point out that it would just lead to headlines of David Cameron in a room full of losers. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I, When we were in opposition, we explored um, Chapter 11 style rules in earnest. And we actually proposed um, a set of Chapter 11 type um, proposals. We were shouted down actually by the business community, so we ended up dropping them ahead of the manifesto. It was um, I, I helped create a, a forum called the New Enterprise um, Council that Stelios of kind of EasyJet fame was on. And Stelios said to us in one of those meetings, he said that both he and Richard Branson had had various companies that they hadn't um, been allowed to fail. Because they hadn't allowed, uh, because the media would be all over them, um, such as the kind of hostility to failure, entrepreneurial failure in this country. Um, and so, we, in response to that, we looked at Chapter Eleven style bankruptcy. I think the problem with it is that um, Chapter Eleven in the States has been so roundly abused. I think it was one of the, the one of the airlines was in technically in Chapter Eleven. Uh, for about ten years, and sort of uh, hiding from creditors in this in this structure, um, but I think I think there are other ways potentially of um, of celebrating um, um, failure. Index ventures, interestingly, um, uh, have a very Silicon Valley type mindset, and a lot of the entrepreneurs they back are entrepreneurs they've backed previously and have lost index a whole bunch of money, but um, have learned a bunch of lessons along the way. Um, and I think I think it's in it's in that kind of you know, um, market-based practice that culture changes. I think if investors are willing, I don't know if this is true with you and your private equity firm, but I think if investors are willing to say, do you know what, we're more likely to give money to invest in, in this entrepreneur because they've tried and failed and have picked themselves up again and learnt, um, I think that's how, that's how culture 
really can change. Okay. There's a question there in the back left, and then there's one in the far back right over there. Next. Firstly, thank you. It's been really interesting listening. Um, I'm a third-year student. I'm an undergraduate. Um, it's kind of going back to the questions relating to grades. Um, so as students, we're obviously trying to distinguish ourselves or whatever, but at the end of the day, we only get to send a CV. Um, so basically, how do you communicate the fact that it's not just the grades and perhaps you do have the experience, especially with a, like entrepreneur first? How do you distinguish yourself because the yeah. idea we get is that um, you kind of just look at the grade classification and the university and the prestige and based on that you're either chucked onto one pile or the other Yeah. so it's just kind of how to come around that and show us you're someone who's passionate who's someone yeah Yeah. well you know I think that uh you know, we're very blessed to you know, live in a, an age where it's so cheap and so easy to start things. And um, you know, I, when I'm looking at hiring people, I'm always keen to you know, find people that have been proactive, um, that have, have thought outside the box and have, have made new things happen. Um, I think that if you're trying to get onto entrepreneur first, over and above starting um, a business which you know you do have the kind of time and space I would argue you know while you're at the LSE to, to have a crack at that um, on top there's a there's a brilliant program um, and initiative called Silicon Milk Roundabout so in addition to the milk round um, where the big blue chips come here there's a, an event that takes place in East London a couple of times a year. The next one's happening in May, I think, called Silicon Milk Roundabout. And that's where uh, the fast-growing tech companies uh, are looking for interns, are looking for um, people to come and, and work for, uh, at, at those companies rather than at you know, Goldman Sachs. And I think that is a fantastic way of signaling your passion and commitment and frankly kind of you know daring um in thinking differently um so i would i would definitely look at silicon milk roundabout in addition to entrepreneur first uh and in addition to starting something yourself i mean why not give it a go um i mean look at the look at the array of companies that have been born uh out of campuses across the world i mean why couldn't that start right here okay far back uh Yes, the gentleman in the tie. Uh, hi, uh, I'm, I'm uh, an LSE alumni and I uh, work in public affairs. Um, so you, you spoke about your, um, the, way you, you, the way in which you viewed uh, the world change when you were at LSE. You started seeing clouds rather than cuckoo clocks. Um, but I think if you look at things such as the floods and the media's response to that... Um, in the UK, or the electorate is, is more inclined to find cuckoo clocks than clouds. Um, so how, as a policymaker, do you respond to that? Mm. Um, and do you agree with it? No, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, I think that, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that a belief in um, sort of bottom-up idea generation, a belief in um, decentralization, a belief in what Karl Popper called piecemeal social engineering rather than utopian social engineering, i.e. Um, experimentation, iteration, doesn't in any way negate the role of the state and you know, a, a, you know, a, a strong and capable and efficient state that is capable of responding um, to, to big challenges like, like the floods. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
while the bulk of the response to the floods should be about kind of bulldozers and dredging and you know big big important interventions it's also worth saying that last weekend there was a fantastic initiative that took place at the google campus in shoreditch and it was called um the flood hack and uh it was a few hundred um developers software engineers got together to create tools for um people that had been victims of flooding using government data and while you know that you know that intervention which is a voluntary intervention using government data you know is not going to um you know um stop someone's house being underwater i think it is an example of how um a bottom up approach can play a small role uh, in addition to the big weighty stuff you know i think that um um yeah it, it, i think to me the the challenge with government though is that um uh almost always there's a view that there is an answer and that someone somewhere can fix things and i think one of the challenges to do with kind of wet the weather and also the economy is 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 an understanding of of cycles and uh and that there are some forces that are bigger than us and you know the best we can do is to kind of respond in a in a kind of efficient and proactive way um or efficient and uh and productive way um the floods maybe are just you know a particularly extreme example of that okay i think we might have time for one more question who's had their hand up for a really long time and feels like i've been ignoring them there's uh, let's go with the person in the middle there <laughs> thank you uh, hi, my name is Elliot. Uh, I'm an undergrad at LSE studying politics, and I've started uh, LSE's first ever coding courses. So, wow. thank you for coming. It's oh, uh, an inspiration. Um, I was wondering at, at the LSE, you mentioned that it's a very entrepreneurial university. Um, I don't know if I quite agree. First right. of all, but I mean, on that note, uh, I mean, coding and skills like entrepreneurship and coding don't really translate, I think, in the, in the student mindset at the moment to getting a job mm. at Goldman Sachs or whatever, which at the moment is still the narrative. Yeah. It's, it's a very overbearing kind of thing. I want to get a job at uh, Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. Um, and I was wondering if you could share any advice to any societies or, or even individuals who want to uh, break out of the, the mold at LSE and similar institutions uh, and who want to create kind of communities at schools like yeah. these where um, coding, entrepreneurship, and other exciting initiatives can, can grow? You know, um, it's a great question, and, and uh, I'm sure it is still the overbearing narrative. Um, go to the LSE, get a blue-chip job. The truth is, uh, and I say this with many, many friends who work at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and whatever, and I say this to them, just as I'm saying to you, those jobs suck. And um, they are, they're like the job that I had at the Treasury. They are hidebound. You have very little autonomy. You are on a sort of conveyor belt um, that is incredibly predictable. Um, you live for the weekend. You know, you don't get to... Steve Jobs put it, make a dent in the universe. And um, I think that's a real shame. And I think that there's an opportunity to, uh, and I'm you know, um, very keen to help on this, um, to bring 
entrepreneurs, you know, if you look at Michael Acton Smith, who founded Mind Candy, um, uh, if you look at Demis Hassabis, who founded DeepMind, uh, a company that uh, is a sort of next generation artificial intelligence company that Google bought for 400 million pounds. This company was only a couple of years old. You know, these are people that are kind of the active agents of their faith that have created um, team cultures uh, that are creative and entrepreneurial, uh, fun, um, and have made far more money than you can make uh, doing the kind of blue chip, kind of pursuing the blue chip uh, path. And, and that just feels to me like, you know, the, it's not like there's a, you're making a choice. It's not like um, either you can go and make lots of money uh, or have a fun career. I, you know, the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship right now is you really can do both. And for a long way up the corporate ladder, you don't really earn that much. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I'd, I'd sort of say, you know, how can you, and they will always come to the LSE. You know, the incredible thing about this place is that you invite them here, invite anyone here and they'll come. Um, you know, get those, get those entrepreneurs to, um, to your societies. You know, just, just uh, drop them emails, get in touch with their publicity departments and get them down here and have them tell the stories of the companies they built. And, you know, you, you'll get from them a sense of kind of fun and daring, a sense that every single day uh, is full of kind of challenges and opportunity. Go on a tour of Tech City. Um, if, you, if, you, if you go to the Mind Candy office, go to Google Campus. You know, these are just the most sort of enlivening, inspiring places to be. And I, I really think that you'll think that's where I want to work. Um, you know, you go to, by contrast, go to McKinsey, go to Goldman Sachs, go to the civil service. Uh, you know, there is um, people, um, I think if, uh, I think when we're all old and we're looking back on how we spent our lives, we won't dream that we spent more time in a McKinsey office or a Goldman Sachs office in front of a spreadsheet um, or uh, working until four in the morning to do a presentation um, to a faceless client. That's just not what I think moves all of you. Um, it's not what moves us. Um, entrepreneurship, on the other hand, is an opportunity to kind of recast the world around us. And, uh, uh, and, and given that you can also make a shed ton of money, um, why wouldn't you pursue that as a course of action? Great. All right. Well, we reached the end of the uh, the conversation. I want to thank all of you for your questions and for coming. I especially want to thank our guest, Ryan Silva. He's been ill for the past week with the flu, so he showed up tonight like a real trooper, and I think he's going to join us in the bar as well for free drinks. All right. Let's give him a round of applause. Thank you.